Thank you. Yep. Well, but then it's always a pleasure for, for, for us, ISF, to welcome you to our ISF Connect activities. Uh, it's important to keep uh, a contact with all of our members and all the people and coming from all around the world. And uh, we know that we don't have so much time. Then I'll ask immediately to Fiona to continue to give the floor to our colleagues who sure. will speak today. Okay, then just uh, a, a, a small command. Then we are all together uh, to do a, a great job. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mark. So I have just a couple of things to say to, to kick this off. Uh, first of all, we're one year old today, the ISF Connect initiative, which was set up by ISF, basically to try and pull us all together um, during the pandemic. But we believe that it will continue well beyond the pandemic whenever that ends. And the purpose really of what we're doing is to try and come together to hear research and insights into any important issues that matter to our field. I'd like to call out Risto Martinen particularly, because Risto has been phenomenal in getting this ISEP Connect out as a podcast after every single one of our events and to extend our outreach. Um, I'd like to thank as well everybody who's contributed this year, especially uh, and particularly Cassandra, who has been here all the time, keep, keeping things moving along smoothly, advertising our events. Um, I want to thank Cathy Armour for being our very first uh, person to sit on the ISEP Connect bench to Doug Gleddy, Elke Griminger, Seiden Sticker, to Arias Saxlati, to Kirsty Howells, to Lars Borguts and Menno Slingerland, and Gwen Wildenberg, to uh, Brian Kulp, to Ching-Wei Chang, to Oskian Lee, to Sotaro Honda. And now we are really thrilled to welcome Vicky Gojir and Kiki Makapulu. Uh, Kiki has had the misfortune of knowing me for 20 years, the poor girl. Uh, we met each other in, in Loughborough when we were doing our masters with, um, with Kathy Armour and Ash Casey would have been part of that cohort. And Vicky, I had the great fortune to meet about 10 years ago at an ISEP conference in Limerick. Um, so today I'm gonna to pass the floor across to them. They're going to speak about optimizing social media for physical activity, diet and quality of life. And they're going to speak specifically about lessons learned from COVID-19. I'd really like you to put your questions in the chat because the way ISEP Connect works, we'd like to hear from the floor. What are your ideas and thoughts as this, this uh, presentation is going on? I will make sure that everybody's voice is heard in this so that we can pose our questions to Vicky and to Kiki. Um, and um, I think I'd like to pass that across now so they get their, their maximum amount of time. So if everybody else could be on mute, that would be fantastic. And we pass the floor across to Vicky and to Kiki. Okay, thank you. Hey, thanks Fiona for a lovely introduction. Um, 10 years does sound like quite a long time ago, <laughs> but um, we're really um, delighted that ISEP asked us to come and present this work, um, which started about a year ago. Um, and we're gonna present on the title as, as Fiona just suggested, optimizing social media for physical activity, diet and quality of life and some lessons learned from COVID-19. So today, Kiki and I will present and present this work and in the context of physical education and sport pedagogy. 
but we present on behalf of our diverse multidisciplinary team that brings together expertise in sports psychology, nutrition, physiotherapy, and public health. And through a live course approach that works with diverse groups from youth to aging, to active versus inactive, and with diverse ethnicities and socioeconomic groups. So grounded in the definition of sport and exercise pedagogy, this enables us to make effective recommendations for physical education and sport pedagogy. And we would also like to acknowledge our funder, the ESRC, who supported this work, as well as our research assistants, Grace Wood, Beth Skinner, and our digital learning designer, Jags. So to provide a structure to the, the talk today, um, what we will do is talk through some background literature, the methods, findings, and implications. So some background. The first point is about um, the relationship about social media and health. And the first point is about the accessibility of health information. Through sites such as Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, information is shared by the general public, professionals, influencers, and accredited organizations and across various formats, including memes, images, and at a low cost. A key advantage of social media is that unlike more passive forms of information, social media can help to translate knowledge into personalized action at specific points in time when it becomes needed and without the need for a physical instructor, a physical educator, or a physical health setting. Also, social media provides access to social and emotional support through increased opportunities for interaction and in real time. Um, but there are also concerns, and these tend to be about time use relationships and the displacement and health and well-being promoting activities. There are also concerns about the quality and reliability of information, misinterpretation, misinformation, and these have the potentials to lead to physical and mental harms. But there are limitations of the current research. We know little about the characteristics of social media and positive health change, particularly in relation to physical activity and diet. Most evidence is drawn from clinical population groups, and we know little about the general population, such as healthy young people. Most interventions also focus on the mediums defined by the research team, such as Facebook, and we know little about the mediums that are engaging attractive to, to young people or, or different audiences. So there's little evidence on natural interventions. And there's also a dominant focus on passive social media use. And that's the giving of information, even though we know that this is a very interactive medium. So I'll now pass over to Kiki. So we felt that COVID-19 lockdown period provided an opportune moment to address some of these evidence-based gaps and particularly the somewhat complex and multidimensional relationship between technology and health. Indeed, some of the COVID-19 challenges that may have influenced behavior change were restricted movement, altered access to food, closed exercise and sports facilities, school closures, economic instability, and fear of infection. But also some of the opportunities were political emphasis on maintaining good health, technology and social media use increased uh, due to homeworking, homeschooling and increased leisure time. And there was also increased accessibility of health information. So our study aimed to, and I believe Vicky, you will play a video. Thank you. 
specifically, the aim was to explore how social media use informs physical activity and diet-related behaviors, as well as perceptions of quality of life. And secondly, to assess the contextual factors that drive social media use for health-related behavior change for diverse groups. We will now provide um, a brief overview of the methods to move on to the next uh, stage. Uh, but uh, this is quite a brief overview, but do get in touch uh, for further information. So overall, this was a mixed methods explanatory sequential design where data collected from uh, an online survey uh, and this informed the focus groups that followed. Specifically, first we began uh, with stakeholder consultations that included 50 participants from different contexts, researchers, professionals, practitioners in sport, exercise, public health, and education contexts. The aim was to determine recruitment strategies for the survey and the other uh, and the focus groups, the methods that we use and specific measures. And two of these um, uh, uh, consultation uh, meetings focused on young people in schools. The first data collection tool was uh, an online survey which was distributed, distributed during the first lockdown period in the UK. And the combination of validated questionnaires for behavior change and bespoke social media questions uh, was used. Most required responses on a linked scale, but also included free text. And descriptive analysis uh, was completed for all variables and content analysis of free text responses was carried out uh, using established methods. Then we carried out 20 focus groups in total and a purpose example of participants was selected and organized into eight different groups. Um, and these represented the behavior changes reported in the survey data. So we had, for example, a group with participants reporting high social media use and low physical activity levels and so on. And thematic analysis were completed on this. Okay, so um, if we give some brief overview of the findings, so the first um, thing is around participant characteristics and social media use. So the sample was of 786 participants. The age was range was 66 to 88. The predominant sample was females, white British and moderate levels of deprivation. And this tends to be consistent with survey um, samples. 72% of the participants said that their time spent on social media increased. The average time was two to four hours. And the most prominent platforms were WhatsApp, Facebook, and YouTube. In terms of social media content, most participants saw health-related content and content related to diet and quality of life was used the most. Individuals working from home used social media content for health the most and using social media content was associated with physical activity change, improved diet, but a decrease in quality of life. So breaking down the content that was used, so in relation to physical activity, predominant forms of content was related to high intensity interval training, yoga, resistance and running challenges. In terms of diet, there was a focus on recipes, but then also specific diets such as vegan, anti-stress or vitamin D. And in terms of quality of life, the main focus was on hobbies, clubs, meditation, not mediation, and social interaction. We then looked at some uh, content analysis of the social media posts and what we could do from this is break down who was the content shared by and what was the focus. The main um, content accessed and used by participants was from celebrity influencers, personal trainers and fitness coach and that there was an overwhelming emphasis on Joe Wicks, the body coach and PE with Joe mentioned the most. Followed by sites, I'm not sure if you're aware of, Yoga with Adrienne, Alice, 
Living, Athleen, X and Chloe Ting. Um, the second dominant category was around information shared from local health and sport organisations. So local fitness centres and gyms that started to put Zoom classes online, for example. Um, then we had the National Health Service, but also high profile sport organisations. So in the UK, um, NHS or the Football Association. And then there was an emphasis on celebrity doctors and celebrity chefs. So I'll now um, pass over to Kiki. So in terms of the contextual factors influencing the use of content, uh, we had five key findings. Uh, firstly, social media were perceived to be free access and easy to engage. Uh, economic instability and the perceived opportunities of social media to be used for information and interaction. But unfamiliarity with social media were barriers to the use of social media. These were overcome by uh, A, the provision of free social media accounts and health-related content that was accessible across devices and platforms, and B, content delivered in a video format that was short in duration, requiring no equipment or minimal inexpensive recipe ingredients. Secondly, less time spent commuting, traveling to work, and more leisure time combined with the ease of completing online social media workouts at home and with the family, were key drivers for using social media to access and act on physical activity and diet information. Thirdly, access to community-based health-related contexts was restricted during the lockdown, but local organizations and groups of individuals used social media to run their typical exercise and cooking sessions online. And in turn, this provided a sense of community, a ritual, schedule, and enabled participants to maintain social connections, influencing overall uh, their quality of life. Fourthly, the perceived need to improve health-related behaviors coupled with restricted social interactions outside of households were drivers for the use of social media. Live physical activity and diet videos shared on social media were particularly helpful resources to inform physical activity and diet behaviors when presenters portrayed their real lives, personalities, and everyday bodies uh, by being warm, calm, and laid back, and by opening their doors to their homes. And in turn, this promoted feelings of, you know, we're in this together and reduced feelings of isolation. Finally, uh, misinformation and diverse health conditions health-related knowledge and experience with social media impacted on the willingness and interest to engage with and use health-related social media content. However, recommendations or endorsements by peer family members and or official organizations that participants were affiliated with and trusted influenced participants to use and engage with content related to physical activity, diet and quality of life. And I'm passing back to you. Okay. So thanks. So whilst we saw all those themes, there were we identified in the data three differences between three main groups, and these were groups that um, had high physical activity levels prior to the lockdown. So they met the World Health Organization's for physical activity, so three or more hours per week. Low physical activity levels, so did not meet the World Health Organization's for recommendations for physical activity and shielding groups. And these tended to be older adults or adult or individuals with medical conditions. So we'll explain these um, differences through the videos. Charlie is a very active person. 
He does a lot of physical exercise and plays a lot of sport. Charlie would normally do 10,000 or 15,000 steps a day, but during the lockdown period, he did half the number of steps. Although he used to go to the gym, he was quite lucky to have some weights at home and he could maintain his workouts. Charlie is an active user of social media, like Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Prior to the lockdown, he had already explored YouTube Live and Instagram Live for physical activity workouts and exercises. For instance, Charlie had heard of Joe Wicks and at the start of lockdown, he watched the start of his very first video, PE with Joe. The exercises are fairly straightforward, basic and not challenging for people with high fitness levels. Charlie's use of social media increased during the lockdown period. He said it became a time filler. He began to find new uses and benefits of social media that he wasn't aware of prior to the lockdown. He said he was using WhatsApp a lot more because he was in a group with his football team. Because he wasn't seeing the guys at weekends for football, the WhatsApp group was just a way of keeping in touch, making sure everyone was healthy and getting on with their lives okay. A friend of Charlie's also referred him to Strava. During the lockdown, he was nominated in the first week for the Run 5 Give 5 National Health Service Challenge. This involved running 5k and donating £5, and this could be tracked through the Strava app. And he enjoyed using Strava because he could interact with people on there, set challenges, and enter leaderboards and stuff. And he ended up joining different running communities through the app. Charlie had also been looking up videos of ex-pros on YouTube. He said he was accessing some of the Rick Shields videos to improve his golf swing. These were really helpful. They're actually showing you how to hit the ball and you can keep repeating the video and it gets grooved into your mind. For people like Charlie who are active, they are not the target market of much of the health related material on social media and much of the exercise and workout content has little relevance to the bodies of people who are physically active. Yet social media supports the overall health and well-being of active adults like Charlie because it affords opportunities for interaction with teammates of local sports teams, enables participation in virtual physical activity communities and supports learning from ex-professional sportsmen and women that these individuals may not typically have access to. So that was the story of Charlie, and we'll now move on to the story of Lauren. And this is low physical activity levels. Prior to the lockdown, Lauren barely had a minute to herself, and her life was quite stressful. Her commute to work was near three hours, and her only exercise was walking up the stairs and walking to her desk. She has two children and a husband, and she is that tired at the end of each day that she doesn't have the inclination to spend time preparing decent food. At work, she would go down the canteen and get a sandwich and a packet of crisps for lunch. But by two in the afternoon, she would always be at the vending machine. And on her way home from work, she would often stop at Tesco and just grab some chicken and fries to put in the oven. On March 23rd, Boris announced a national lockdown. This was a shock. But the whole situation brought to light Lauren's health and her immune system. 
She started to think more about her immune system, the immune system of her family, and how she could improve their immunity. Facebook had created a page devoted to COVID, and with Reddit, there were subreddits devoted to COVID. She came across one article that said, exercise will not only make you feel better, but it will make you feel better in your mind. So she made the decision there and then, this will be the year that I start getting back into exercise. Lauren looked at home workout videos on YouTube and she began to follow Fitness Blender. It's free and they have 500 to 600 videos of various levels and various activity types. The videos are down to earth and the instructors are just so normal and after a couple of sessions she found that it feels great and it's super fun. She now does about 6 days a week of 35 to 50 minutes of various types of cardio, HIIT, strength training and Pilates. Lauren has also been following a lot of recipes on Pinterest. She came across something called Food for Mood and that focuses on pretty much everything to do with mental health, mental well-being, mindfulness and diet. She also follows quite a few vegan bloggers even though she is not vegan, because they are conscious about immunity, not too much sugar, and no processed food. Lauren also follows the Spice Club, which is a local Birmingham Indian girl. She has been holding cooking classes online, and Lauren has been doing them every week. It's given Lauren the chance to cook things and the opportunity to learn. Overall, Lauren's life has improved. Covid spurred her to improve her health and social media helped her work out how to do things she got well-being from. Because she had more time and spent more time at home, she could switch on YouTube and do sessions at home and she could do these with her children. Overall, life is less exhausting. Lauren has a lot more energy and she's a lot happier. She and her colleagues spoke to her boss the other day about the phase return to work. They said joking around, don't make us go back, we love this. Okay, then the final story is of Jean, and this is uh, tends to be of older adults or individuals with um, medical conditions. Jean is 65 and self-isolating, and her life has changed hugely due to COVID-19. She said in March she got a letter. I'm not supposed to do anything, not supposed to leave the house for three months. It's now May, and there have been days when it's been a bit tricky. You're quite cut off from the world in lockdown. You can't go swimming, you can't walk to the shops, and we can't actually physically see our children and grandchildren. Jean's husband Bob has enjoyed the extra time in the garden and has been able to read a lot of books. But overall, the quality of life has definitely decreased. Jean said that one change is that we now have to shop online. We have a slot and Bob gets a slot every week. This has been okay. I think we've done quite well, still maintained a healthy diet. There were a few snags, of course. There were definitely problems getting hold of fresh food and working out a system. And substitutes, well, they were interesting. Some of the things I would never dream of using or eating. So to start with, Bob had three weeks of nothing but sausage sandwiches. But now I think we are more or less as we were. I bake, I like baking, and we've tried new recipes. The biggest change, though, has been the increased use of Facebook and social media 
like YouTube and Zoom. Three months ago, I had never heard of Zoom. Now I call it my best friend. Jean also joined WhatsApp and Instagram since lockdown because her friends are on it. Social media has been a positive resource for Jean and Bob. In many ways, it's your only link with other people. For their children and grandchildren, Jean and Bob can actually see them and interact with them rather than just seeing a photograph. It was difficult at first. Jean says the emotional part was not being able to hug. But once you got past that, it was all quite normal because we had all these family quizzes on Zoom and stuff. Jean also found that social media is good for physical activity. She said that YouTube classes are really good for ballet. Jean and Bob also tried Joe Wicks for seniors. But they tried to do everything and as a result couldn't walk for two days. So they stopped. But now make a point of exercising for an hour a day without Joe Wicks. Bob has a different view on social media though. He says, there's too much rubbish on social media. Too much misinformation, conspiracy theories, anti-vaxxers. Jean is a bit more optimistic. She said, I have seen some exercises and I think it's not appropriate for me. But I pick up links from my son and so I'll follow things up on from there. Word of mouth, really. She does understand Bob's concerns, though. I think we're more aware of our privacy as well. Maybe as sort of more senior people, we're more bothered about who has seen what. Lockdown has been tough for people like Jean and Bob self-isolating. They've had to change their routines, but for physical activity and family relationships, social media has been a big help. Okay, so bringing this in to all together then, and what are the implications um, and relevance to physical education and sport pedagogy? So in conclusion of the key findings, what we can say is that social media has a positive influence on health behaviours. And this is through information, interaction, interaction, and a source of entertainment. Social media is influenced by contextual factors, such as home, work, health, lifestyles, knowledge of health, and previous or existing health behaviours. Differences occur across groups, and this is, this is varied for different living situations and low and high physical activity levels. There are contradictions between how people attach value to social media and then how they use the medium. So overall, this seems quite positive, but it's very complex. And social media means different things for different people. So bringing this more back to um, physical education and sport pedagogy. Um, what we see here is that there's the key thing around um, social influence. Social media influencers, they gain the trust and friendship of their followers by positioning themselves as experts, sharing expert information, showcasing personal experiences, and by creating a sense of perceived relatability, intimacy, familiarity, and sympathy. These are, could or could be, similar actions of teachers and coaches. And we need to consider these emerging influences role on youth health and well-being to inform behaviours. At the same time, while influences can promote mass engagement and enable physical activity to become cool or trendy, some focus on narrow body ideals and equate these to health. So we must be cautious also of the complications. And this is where it gets even more complicated because some of them are qualified personal trainers and do have the expert knowledge. 
But what we don't see and was evident in our data is necessarily how they're tailoring the information to individual needs and bodies. So there's a positive and a, a negative there to, to understand. In an extension of point two, we must consider social media as a life course approach. It seems safe to say from our data that social media is here to stay and it will not go away. We are also now seeing more of the population using and engaging with health-related social media. Data from our study showed the peers and family members were powerful influencers, and we're now seeing also older adults. So we've not got to consider the role of just parents, but grandparents using social media for health. We therefore must consider how content can become endorsed and the powerful role of multiple different people and contradiction viewpoints in terms of the value and role of social media in young people's health and well-being. In terms of the ecologies of learning, this builds on social ecological frameworks and suggests that learning is context dependent and is not isolated to home, school, community or technology. It's happening all the time and it's happening across these settings. So we need to know how teachers can enrich and support young people's informal learning outside of school, rather than banning or blocking social media or critiquing experiences. For instance, social media, as was evident in our consultations, is a powerful context for identity development for young people. There is also increasing recognition by the World Health Organization and national, national organizations like Public Health England to use social media to reach mass audiences, including young people. And we've seen how this can be achieved through the power of social media from the data in our study. But as a profession, we need to be coming more and more into this debate and we need to bring our valuable pedagogical expertise to these discussions to inform effective behavior change approaches and inform effective approaches to young people's learning. And what became clear from our discussions is that there is a lack of knowledge amongst um, participants and perhaps the, the professionals, the teachers and coaches involved on the knowledge of um, health behaviors by teachers. And there is a need for CPD, not just on the technologies and how to use technology in PE, on digital youth agency and relationships to health being and how teachers can enrich and support young people's informal learning through social media. So the final point we finish with today um, is that if we do not consider the fundamental role of social media in health and well-being within our PE programs, are we failing young people? So we would like to thank um, you for listening. Um, in June, we are releasing um, some guidelines on this area. We'll be releasing the videos and um, hopefully there'll be a couple of papers published reporting on the findings. We'd like to thank again our team that brings us all together um, and thank you for listening and thank you to ISEP on behalf of Kiki and I. Thanks so much Vicky and Kiki. Um, so we're going to get down to just having um, a conversation really. Um, so what I'm going to do if it's okay with everybody is to start working through some of the questions in the chat. And then if anybody wants to just ask a question directly of Vicky and Kiki, please put your hands up and, and I'll come to you as fast as I can, if that's okay. So I'm looking at the chat now and first comment, Mark, um, you've made there, it seems that there's no mention or references to actions proposed by the educational context, i.e. school or physical education. Is that true? So you did kind of allude to that in your, in your final comments there, but have you anything you might want to add to that, either Vicky or Kiki? Um, yeah, Kiki, did you want to talk through the teacher consultations on the data and stuff? Uh, yes, uh, so we conducted two different focus groups and um, 
we, we tried to uh, collect uh, some key ideas about what kind of advice we could give um, uh, to teachers uh, about the topic of social media and B. And uh, the starting point um, is, of course, that young people engage with social media extensively and they learn informally in these digital contexts. Um, but this engagement also varies. Some young people are more critical consumers uh, than others. So one obvious implications for, uh, implication for schools and teachers is that they need to support all young people to develop digital literacy uh, so that this engagement is done safely, responsibly and effectively. And I know that in England, at least, schools are moving into that direction um, uh, currently. And safeguarding, of course, is another key dimension in this. Uh, but I think, as uh, Vicky mentioned, there's also scope to use social media pedagogically. Uh, if, especially if we take the standpoint that um, digital engagement is a fundamental right, human right for young people, uh, then another piece of advice is that teachers need to explore ways to integrate digital, digital engagement uh, and social media in students' learning. And of course, uh, in those consultations, um, there was this discussion about uh, how teachers would respond to that. Some would potentially ask, um, why is this needed? What are the benefits? Um, but we know from research that using social media as a health-based intervention uh, can have a positive effect on young people's physical activity, knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors. Um, so there is, you know, one piece of advice to teachers is that there is learning potential for young people um, if social media are integrated in teaching and learning effectively. Um, and of course, we shouldn't forget that digital engagement is a fundamental right. Um, but we, there was also clear discussion around um, uh, that notion of uh, shifting of perception. So we do, you know, we do expect some teachers, we do require a shift in some of those teachers thinking and perceptions from understanding social media as inherently harmful or, or risky to a position where uh, the value of meaningful and safe engagement is understood and capitalized. Um, and there are also issues around uh, related to teachers' knowledge and skills to use technology and digital pedagogies uh, effectively. Uh, and then obviously the next stage is um, when we think about teachers and the implications is that many would wonder and would want to know how social media can be used pedagogically. And uh, Vicky is the expert and I expect some others in the, uh, in the group, but we have neither clear cut answers about this. How do we actually do it practically? Um, nor a plethora of existing programs. So there is certainly scope for further applied research here as researchers work uh, with teachers and other stakeholders in education to co-design, to implement, and obviously evaluate social media, digital technologies of pedagogical interventions. And of course, teachers at the level of practice also need to work with students in developing those co-constructed understandings of social media use and content. Um, how can this be done, you know, for example, uh, and depending on the year group and subject matter, um, focused teachers can encourage students to proactively search for knowledge related to physical activity behaviors and to bring this to the lesson to review, to develop and transform that knowledge. And Vicky and Kathy have recently written about how bringing closer together formal and informal learning uh, in a collaborative setting through this ecological model uh, and empowering and liberating learning opportunities. And it also provides clear professional learning benefits for teachers. So this would be another piece of advice that we have to work with students and with researchers to develop 
um, uh, programs, but we also have to consider um, that at least in England, uh, phone usage in classroom is restricted or even banned in many schools. Um, so it is imperative to build confidence in teachers and leaders that they have control of phone usage in lessons and that this usage is positive, focused and purposeful you know, as there are many pitfalls uh, in that. Um, so schools need to develop clear policies around this. I guess this is a very long answer. So <laughs> I guess to summarize, uh, in terms of thinking about the implications, um, we have to ensure that teachers understand the need to develop young people's digital literacy. So this is an imperative goal, um, you know, especially from a rights-based perspective. And that there is scope for teachers to work with researchers and students to develop programs and to utilize that social media usage as a pedagogical tool. Yeah, so this is serious implications for physical education, teacher education, and it has serious implications for what we do in CPD, which we might visit in a moment. But there's one question from Jackie Yang here, and she's asking, would you be able to clarify the difference between social media and digital technology? Because sometimes they're kind of used interchangeably, um, and we would like to kind of understand that, I suppose, within this call. So would, would, would either of you like to take that, just to, to maybe explain the difference, if there is any, as you see it? Yeah, so um, we, it was an interesting point, actually, because um, uh, as part of our group, um, when we set out to study this, um, it was how do we define social media, and social media is going to mean different things to different people. So as a broad definition, we took social media as meaning social networking, and social networking is things like Instagram, um, or and then we had social media as microblogging, which is Twitter, social bookmarking, which is Pinterest, um, and uh, media sharing, which can be things um, like I can't think of one off the top of my head, Snapchat, YouTube, um, yeah. and uh, we also had social professional social networking, so things like LinkedIn. What emerged from our participants, and particularly the older generations, was that they were actually defining things like Zoom as a form of social media. And if you take the definition of social media, which is broadly um, to consume and produce content in an, in an open and a mass generated space that can have public and private functionality, then you could actually suggest that Zoom is a form of social media. So from that broad definition, um, in terms of social media is a form of tech, digital technology. So it's a subgroup of technology. Um, the inherent being um, the way we would define it is, is, is consuming and producing content. So not all technologies allowed you to do that, that process and in mass networks. So that's how we define it. Okay, that's really helpful. Um, and I'm just gonna shift a little bit here. And this is a question from Lorraine Kale. She's just asking, and you did mention it earlier, I know on one of your earlier slides about how diverse your participant group was. Could, could you maybe comment on that and maybe your insights into how different uh, groups would have experienced, uh, I suppose, social media and how it enhanced their, their health or otherwise. So what would your comments be in relation to that if you dug deep into that area, as it were? It was, it was definitely an aim of ours to, to recruit to diverse groups, but it was, a, it was an aim that was not necessarily fulfilled to the extent that we would have hoped for. Um, so for instance, um, Aphrodite Stahi and Janice Thompson um, do particular work with diverse, diverse groups, diverse socioeconomic and ethnicity groups. And we were really interested in understanding the differences between these. Um, within our survey sample, the, there was 10% from um, Black, Asian and ethnic and minority ethnic groups. 
Um, if we think in the population in the UK, we were as around 14, 15%, as I understand it from the, um, the ONS national statistics. So we were not exactly off, but we weren't too far off. Um, but within that overall sample, there wasn't enough within the kind of range to do any subgroup analysis within the survey. Um, so we decided not to um, because the samples were too small. Yeah. What we did do in the focus groups was we, met, we tried as best as we could through the recruitment to make sure that the um, recruitment of the survey mirrored the sample. And I think we were around 7% for the, um, the BAME groups in the focus groups. So the, it's reflective as best as we could, um, but we, can do, we would say it's, it's acknowledging the voices, but it's not representative and it's not um, generalizable. Um, so it is a limitation of the work. Yeah, but it's a very straightforward and honest answer to that. So thank you. And, and maybe there's an appetite in the future to, to see what we could do about that in future studies. Um, a question then I have, and it, I suppose it, it links to that, is uh, the, I suppose the ethics of this, because it's quite kind of interesting and an interesting space um, that you've been working in. And um, can you comment on, I suppose, how you had to manage that? Because we're more and more starting to work as researchers in that area. Um, and could you, as an expert in that, Vicky, could, would you mind sharing with us those ethical considerations that you had to make um, when you were designing this study? Yeah, so um, one of the, with some of the ethical considerations, and it was interesting, we, we did, you probably saw from the video, we did intend to recruit from age 13. Um, and we had a number yes, of challenges yeah. and dilemmas as we went through this process and we went online. Um, and one of the things was around informed consent. And we were asking, um, we wanted to invite young people to do the survey. So you can um, uh, go through, you know, the, the recommendation, you can go for opt-out consent. And so teachers could send it, but we were slightly concerned with asking questions around quality of life. And we were concerned with asking, you know, to get the information on who was influencing, we were crowdsourcing content. So asking them to share links with us. So we were a little bit concerned that, opt-out consent um, was bridging ethical guidelines in that sense. So that was that was one of the aspects that we had to um, encounter in that way. So we decided in the end to go for over 16s um, that we felt more comfortable with in terms of recruitment. And then the, um, the focus groups was then when we would we would tailor down to what, looking at with teachers the implications. Um, we also have data from young people from previous studies that we could then perhaps compare this to. So that was the, the main one was informed consent. Um, in terms of one, how we collected the data, um, you know, we followed perhaps more traditional processes for survey and focus groups. Focus groups online via Zoom, um, we had to consider um, anonymization, um, typical processes, the storage of data, um, the removal of data, that, that sort of thing. Um, the sharing of one of the questions in the survey was for participants to share a link to or name something that they'd had access to. Um, and what's interesting in is, is the publishing of this paper in review is that we, we've been asked to, so I mentioned the presentation, so I've done this in the presentation, but not the paper, um, is that we, we're not allowed to name specific accounts. So I can't name Joe Wicks, I can't name Yoga with Adrienne. We've had to remove those because they are considered um, content that the the influencer wouldn't have given consent to which is surprising because they're high profile in their organizations and they've mostly we've got the blue tick for example on on instagram but that's what we've been asked to do so we've got to remove 
those aspects. So in the reporting of findings, we cannot share the exact content from social media, but we've got to we've got to present it generically. So there, there's this, yeah, there's interesting dilemma there in terms of it being very public yeah. and uh, you could probably guess who they are in the paper. You, well, you will, because you've seen this presentation, yeah. but you, you'd be able to guess, but you couldn't, um, we're not allowed to report, report the names or, or we've got to make every attempt to anonymize the data. Okay, but they're, they're, they're quite interesting insights because we are more and more moving into this space. Now, I'm really conscious just from the comments in the in the chat I'd love us to focus more on physical education now and maybe implications for us as PE professionals. If that's okay with everybody in the call, I hope it's okay. And please put your hands up if anybody wants to jump in here. But I would love, and Kiki, you did kick this off earlier, literally, uh, talking to us about your insights into what that might look like for CPD, uh, for professional development. What would you say, like if you were to, to, to kind of roadmap this, what are the, the, the ways in which we could really uh, get to grips with this? Because this is not, as you said earlier on, going away. Uh, it is something that from the outputs of your research, um, we need to harness. So what would your insights be into where we need to begin here? And I need you to comment on Pete, physical education, teacher education, but then also CPD. Um, and how can ISEP, is my third part of this question, how can we assist in that really important work? Um. I think when we talk about learning, whether this is undergraduate or, you know, um, after they are in post, you know, teachers are often, are often criticized for their lack of knowledge and understanding about young people in social media. Um, although Vicky's research on an earlier project, um, Vicky showed that, you know, teachers have valuable pedagogical expertise. You know, they already have expertise to engage with young people in developmentally and critically informed ways. But there's definitely scope to, um, engage and benefit from professional development. And I guess the findings we, ha we have about professional development from you know, in a range of projects resonate here, you know, it's very similar. So we know that professional development is not always impactful. Um, it is effective when it is evidence and evidence informed. So the latest evidence reaches teachers rapidly. But at the same time, it is not just about teachers learning about initiatives developed elsewhere in a top-down fashion. You know, for decades, scholars have argued about professional development that supports teacher agency and capacity building, where they reflect on their practices uh, and what is appropriate for their learners and so on. Um, so I did mention earlier about the co-construction of programs uh, to integrate you know, so social media in a pedagogically appropriate way. And this can be done through professional development. Um, Another point again relates to collaboration, you know, teacher collaboration, you know, professional learning through teacher collaboration is highly valued. Um, and although this way of learning is not without its faults, uh, there is consensus that professional development needs to be more collaborative and more transformative compared to how it is typically perceived and offered to teachers in a top-down fashion. Um, and I guess it could be relevant over the last couple of years, my own research has um, has led into that direction of more transformative school-based professional development. Um, so for example, in one, of, in one of my projects on inclusion uh, and inclusive physical education, uh, I work with teachers and students um, under the assumption that we can use student voice for professional development. So in this project, we yeah. go to secondary schools, we train teachers as uh, students as researchers, 
then they go out, they collect evidence from their peers about what is inclusion, what is exclusion from their perspective, and then they go back, they collect this evidence, and they co-design with teachers lessons, no, research lessons, and they implement, they observe, they evaluate, and so on. Um, and there are some positive uh, results. So this could be a model uh, that could be appropriate in the context of social media uh, and professional learning to come up with uh, innovative and appropriate ways to incorporate social media in, in practice. Uh, so it's a more bottom-up bottom approach. And of course, we have to work collectively, as you said about ISEP, um, to really develop those robust evaluation sort of programs of this, of this intervention and these professional development opportunities. So we are finally building that evidence base, evidence base about effective professional development. Yeah, it's a really insightful point that the student voice being central because that's that appears from what both of you are saying to be the gap, uh, that the, the lack of understanding or misunderstanding of how they're experiencing it, social media in terms of their health and, and their own mm -hmm. physical education. So how that's harnessed, obviously, from what you pointed out, student voice within professional development. Really, really interesting insight, Kiki. Really interesting. Vicky, is there anything you wanted to add to that in terms of your, your sense of where we need to go here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's from, from a broader education perspective. So there's been some uh, recent reviews of literature done by Christine Greenhow and her colleagues in, in America, and they've done a review and there is no um, current professional development and evidence-based professional development for teachers um, in the area of digital youth behaviours. So it's all focused on how to use digital technologies. At the same time, and there's professional organisations that are doing things that are training or upskilling teachers in the use of social media and technologies. They tend to come from the safeguarding perspective. But then there's emerging programmes. So there's the Apple Educator Programme, the Google Educator Programme, and they're emerging, but they're not evidence-based. So there's a massive gap there um, um, for, for professional development. And I think with the, with the knowledge we have in the, the field... So we've got knowledge of Kiki's work on inclusion. There's um, work on design thinking. There's activist approaches. There's critical pedagogies. There's participatory methods. Um, the RPE profession could begin to actually start leading the way um, because it's not about social. We don't need professional development about social media. We need to we need to help and this be a continuous thing. You know, technology moves so quick. We need professional development that helps teachers co-create and inform young people in the decisions and that being an ongoing process. So I think professional development on digital youth agency is a gap in the literature and somewhere that PE could lead the way. Absolutely, and, and certainly ISEP um, could, could, could help with that because you've just called out a range of expertise that we bring to the table, including the bit around the evidence-based. That seems to be the, the missing piece that nobody, you're not going to believe people on a hunch. It needs to actually have evidence behind it um, or, or else we're not going to be listened to. So that's, I think that's really an interesting point. So what would you both say could be the next steps for ISEP particularly? What would you recommend as experts in this? What would you say we need to be doing here? If we're just kick uh, something off. <laughs> that's a big question. No pressure, no pressure, like no pressure. <laughs> Well, change the world and... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's in the morning and then in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I think um, and Kiki mentioned it, and for me, I think it's about, um, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a field going with the angle of digital youth agency. I think there could be a field going with di um, teacher digital literacy 
And that's not, teach digital literacy is not about um, the skills to use it. It's about the knowledge and the awareness of how young people are using that. Uh, and so that kind of professional development brings in the arguments of social media as an informal space to enrich and support young people's learning and all the kind of wider aspects of, of social media as a medium for health and well-being that cuts across different contexts. So some form of professional development that builds an agenda, a research agenda on digital youth behaviours and looking at different forms of professional development, perhaps, you know, ISEP is an international organisation and those things that I mentioned are coming from different areas of the world. Um, so I'm thinking participatory methods is Ema Enright in Australia, and then there's Kim Oliver's work on activists in, in the US and your work Fiona in, in Ireland and then Kiki's in the UK. You know, there could be some cross collaboration evaluative work there on, on how we can bring different forms of working with young people in professional development and analyze something which would be interesting. Yeah, and I, th I think that's like, I'm just looking at the chat here. I think that could be the point on which we, we rest our case because it's been such an important conversation to have at this point, having come through 13, 14 months of a pandemic, which seems to have amplified the issue, I think, uh, Vicky. So um, I just want to thank both of you sincerely for all your time, your insights, and I, I would say the high quality of the research that you've presented here today. It's been fabulous. And what's super about it is it's recorded so people can listen back and, and come onto our website to see it further. So thank you to both of you. And we, we might do a, a clap, a virtual clap for all of you. So well done, fabulous. And I just have a couple of things before I pass over to, to Mark. So we have one more um, ISF Connect event in May, at the end of May, and we'll be advertising that shortly. Then we're taking a rest, sort of, because we have our ISEP conference in Banff, um, albeit virtual, unfortunately, but it's going to be a superb conference. Um, it's packed, it's jam-packed with amazing, amazing research. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. Um, our Canadian colleagues have, have knocked it out of the park and many of our other colleagues are really uh, making sure that that really does um, have the impact we hope it will have. So I do actually need your help though, because we need ISEP Connect to make sure it's still relevant to our community. That's the point of it. So for the coming year, when we start in September, we would really like to have a really nice uh, series of events that matter to our community. And to that end, if you have ideas around uh, people you'd like to hear from or research that you would like to present as part of our series, would you mind emailing me, f.chambers at ucc.ie, or Mark, uh, Mark's details are on the website, um, and just share with us some of your ideas and we just see what we might do uh, for the coming year. Um, it has been highly successful across the past year, very uh, provocative in terms of the, the lines of thought and discussion, um, and we want more of it actually. So in the coming year, who would you like to hear from and their research live and one of these sessions, and uh, have you a thought around research you want to share with the community? You'd really like us to, to, to profile you. Um, and we want that across the world, because as you know, ISF is a global organization. Um, so the next time we see each other will be in May. Um, I'm going to pass across to Mark, but before I do that, I'm just going to quickly thank Cassandra, who uh, seems to be in a reasonable time zone this, this uh, at the moment because of time changes. But Cassandra, you're the person behind the scenes doing all the advertising, organizing, and making this run smoothly. So thank you sincerely, Cassandra. Um, over to you, Mark, for a final few words. Yeah, thank you uh, for, to all of you uh, staying there. 
it was really interesting and uh, with many ideas for the future. And of course, social media is something that is important at, at the moment, and it will go uh, higher and higher in uh, interest. Then I believe that uh, physical education teachers, coaches will use such tool more and more. And I agree that they should be prepared to, to use that tool in a way that will be helpful for the, uh, the students or for the athletes. Then, of course, we, we can help the, the people to develop these competences. Uh, not alone with different specialists, because I, I'm sure that co-construction will be important in this way to be sure that it will be good. Well, I would like to thank also uh, Cassandra, the two presenters, Fiona, who did a great job again, but also my colleagues from the board, Avia, uh, Susanna was there, and also Denise. Then thank you for being there, and uh, thanks also for uh, your participation. I hope that you will be uh, next month with us. And of course, that uh, you'll be also in band virtually. And I wish you a good weekend. Thanks to Thank all you. of you. Thank you. Thanks again. Thanks.